Good morning, Every Nation. So glad that you've joined us this morning. We're going to be in our established series, our marathon series of 31 weeks, working through the whole Bible. And uh, we're in the part of the story. We've just finally left Genesis. Now we're in Exodus. Uh, and the part of the big story of the Bible that we're in is where the Israelites have been freed from slavery and are marching towards the promised land. So where we find ourselves is uh, in, in, in the middle uh, part of this miraculous journey of being set free from slavery in Egypt and the promised land. And right now we're in this awkward, terrible desert moment. And uh, for those of you that know the story, the Israelites are wandering on the, around in the desert and they do so for about 40 years. And lots happens in this time. Uh, and it's a very, very important time. Now, something that I, I don't know if you've thought this or maybe this is the Sunday school, Jonathan, thinking this through, but I always figured that the wandering in the desert was uh, was like an accident, and it seemed like this strange part of the plan that wasn't all that necessary, and it just seemed all around unfortunate, and, uh, and it was just hard. There was lots of pain, lots of angst, and the whole thing just seems unfortunate. But um, as we're gonna look today, God has a lot of intentionality with this desert time, and it's by no means an accident. And so, what I'd like to do is just uh, read from uh, Deuteronomy eight. And uh, we're going to be reading here about what uh, God is doing in this time. What's the point of this desert? What's the point of this valley? Why is it so long? Why is there so much hardship? And I can imagine it being a very disappointing thing for the Israelites to be set free from slavery and be promised this beautiful, you know, land of milk and honey, <laughs> or however they described it, and then spend most of that, all of that generation actually ends up dying off in the desert. It's... Uh, it seems like a tragedy, and yet there is a ton of purpose in what God is doing in this desert time. And we're, today we're going to be able to pull a lot of things, I think, from what desert moments in your and my life are for, and why God actually, uh, those things aren't accidents, and how God uses them. So let's read Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 2. It says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you or your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. So I just want to pray. Uh, Lord, I pray this morning that you would teach us about uh, what seems to be a tension-filled idea that discipline is from you and that hardship and desert moments uh, are redeemed by who you are. And so, Father, I pray that you give us soft hearts this morning as we explore this that you would teach us something about your character and that you would set us free as you so long to do. And so we just say that we trust you this morning. We trust your plan for our life. And we say again in our hearts that we need you. So give us soft hearts to hear what it is you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the thing that strikes me first from this is that it's very apparent that it's not an accident where it says God led you in the wilderness. It even says God God caused, God's saying, I caused you to hunger. So this is not an accident. This desert moment is not an accident. It's not an unfortunate speed bump in the ultimate destination to the promised land. It's extremely intentional. 
And the word that sums up this intentionality is discipline in this passage. Uh, as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. So this desert moment is treated as discipline. So maybe you can resonate with me in this, but uh, as I was thinking about this, it seems a little harsh that God would discipline people who were just spent, you know, however long being slaves. Like they were just enslaved to Egypt, being treated horribly. And the immediate thing that God does is, I'm going to have to discipline you. It's a little bizarre. Like, haven't they been through enough? Like, have, did you see the way they were treated in Egypt? Like, this, this was supposed to be liberation. And yet, there's this long, drawn-out, intentional moment of discipline for the Israelites. And this passage is very clear uh, on what he's disciplining the Israelites, and you and I, away from. And it's pride. It says, uh, uh, I led you in the wilderness to humble you and test you. And when it, the part where it says that he caused us to hunger, it says uh, he humbled you, causing you to hunger. So it's very clear that what the point of discipline is, is to remove pride. Some translations of, of this passage don't say, uh, I, um, it doesn't say, um, I humbled you. It says, I took away your pride. And so being humbled and having your pride taken away are the same thing. So we're being disciplined away from pride. So again, I ask you, and it is counterintuitive, how are slaves proud? Like they were being treated so poorly, uh, they're being liberated, and then now they're being disciplined because they're proud? It's not, it's not self-evident to me when I think of a slave and what I imagine that to be. Pride is not the first word I'd use to describe a slave. <laughs> Oh, slaves are so proud. Like, I don't know, that, that's, that doesn't flow off the tongue very well, does it? Um, so here's, here's uh, what I think is going on. And here's how it, par- how it uh, is correlated to how you and I wrestle this through. Is um, uh, Pastor Bert, uh, who's, the, who's the pastor of our Every Nation Church in Toronto, said something interesting. And he kind of summed up this Sinai season in, in, in a neat way that I, I think is cool. And... You know, freeing, freeing the Israelites physically from Egypt took, oh, I don't know how long, weeks, days, months, uh, not that long. Uh, but freeing, freeing the Israelites from an Egyptian mindset took 40 years. So what is this Egyptian mindset? What is the mindset of being a slave? And here's what I'd like to submit to you this morning, is that when you're a slave... There's this amazingly convenient thing going on where all the bad things in your life, uh, there's this perk. I mean, slavery is terrible, so it's weird to talk about the perks of slavery, but stay with me. There is this perk of all the bad things in your life can be attributed to just being mistreated. All the calamity, all the problems, all the discord, all the tension, all the pain, it's very easy to go, that guy's messed up, being Pharaoh in this case. We're being mistreated. We're obviously oppressed. We're obviously victims. And uh, a slave is very uh, quick and probably justified in blaming all of their problems on uh, evil, selfish authority. And I resonate with them. It's like, yeah, you're, you're slaves for crying out loud. Like it's, it's, It makes a lot of sense. But here's the problem with that is that there's a mindset there uh, that is... A, there's a mindset of the um, mistrust of authority. And it's actually quite a difficult thing to round a corner 
from authority always being a bad thing that victimizes you and abuses you to something that I think God would long to teach them in this time. So uh, what the Israelites, how the Israelites are proud is they're very quick to blame authority for all of their problems. This is the Egyptian mindset. Uh, this is the slavery mindset, so to speak. And so, you know, I have compassion on them because it's like, wow, this seems really harsh. But given the objective of what God's trying to accomplish, uh, he actually has to discipline them out of this attitude of blaming authority for all of their problems. Because ultimately, God knows that he is perfect authority and he is good and he wants to love and lead them out of their slavery. But his intentions go beyond just setting them free from their physical slavery. His intentions are, I want you to be my people and I want to know you, which means you're going to have to trust me. And we're going to need to have a parent-child kind of relationship. Like we got some big things to conquer here. And your pride of wanting to... Um, abdicate responsibility of all your pain to being, you know, uh, uh, towards your oppressors is something we're going to have to actually work through because I need to take you somewhere and I want to be in relationship with you. So we, we see this in this passage where it says, here's, here's why, you know, in verse, in verse two, it spells it out. Here's why I'm humbling you. Here's why I'm testing you. Here's why I'm taking away your pride. It says this, to know what was in your heart and whether or not you would keep my commandments. So God's saying, I want to humble you and take away your pride to see what's in your heart and to see whether you'll obey me. Now, here's where God is going. He wants their obedience to be out of the overflow of trust that's in their hearts for the God that they love and know. And what I think is so interesting about this is the Israelites have every reason in the world to mistrust authority. Maybe you can resonate with this. Maybe you've been hurt uh, by people that you've trusted in the past. Maybe you have felt enslaved, so to speak, to abusive situations or things where you've really been victimized or where there's been uh, oppression in your life that actually deserves to be reprimanded and scolded and not championed and needs to be walked away from. So God is left with this conundrum with us because he sees those abusive situations. He doesn't condone them. Obviously, slavery wasn't something God was super stoked on. He did lead them out of Egypt after all. But now he has this problem on his hands because he's got a bunch of people that are hurt. And he's got a bunch of people that are quick to be proud and self-protected and not trusting of authority. And so the problem is, is he's like, shoot, I want to rescue you from slavery because I hate seeing you be hurt. I hate seeing you be abused. But also, I want you to love and trust me so I can lead you into love and relationship, not just away from pain. So I kind of feel for God in this respect, too. So God's saying, I want to love you. I don't want to be in a relationship with you. And it's going to actually require you to trust me. So maybe you can resonate with the Israelites in this. Of uh, uh, Before, there was an obligation to obey. And if you didn't obey, it just went poorly for you. And then they leave the desert and they're on their own. And now they have to go, oh, wait, I still need to obey somebody. It's just the new person I'm supposed to obey actually loves me and actually has a plan for me and actually has a promised land in mind. So you and I have been promised some stuff by God, by Jesus, to be in loving relationship with him. And we, like the Israelites, have lots of reasons not to trust him. 
not to trust authority, and to be proud and self-protective. So uh, what I think would be good to just stop and pause and go, okay, let's reflect on ourselves a little bit. And what we can learn from what the Israelites did over and over and over again in the desert, kind of, it was their knee-jerk reaction out of their pride and out of their really quick knee-jerk reactions to blame authority for all of their problems. They do it all over the place in this desert time is because it's just what they're used to. I have compassion on them, but it is frustrating for God and for Moses, who's, you know, the leader that God's appointed, to try and lead these people somewhere. So here's a, here's a, here's a few things that I think we can learn from the Israelites in this time. And uh, perhaps you can see some of yourself in what's going on in your wrestle with trusting God ultimately for where he's leading you and taking you and you being okay with God disciplining you and removing your pride. Like, so here's, here's what's going on. A couple ways to detect, detect pride that I see. Uh, firstly, um, it's uh, maybe you do this. I know I do is that uh, I take credit for all the good things in my life. If something goes well, uh, my proud heart wants to build on that and see it as my own accomplishments. And God is quick at later in Deuteronomy, God saying, you know, when you end up in the promised land and you build nice houses with, with the rocks that are in the land, don't forget me. You know, he's saying, please don't forget me. And we're so quick to forget him. And when things go well, and when we end up in the promised land, we're so quick to forget. And we build our lives and our accomplishments and on our performance. And we're quick to, let who, quick to forget who led us out of slavery. So maybe you do that. Uh, another one that I do, and I think we all do, is we blame authority for the bad things. And we blame authority for the desert seasons. And the Israelites are quoted as saying, it was better in Egypt. <laughs> it was better when, you know, at least they gave us food. And yeah, they were abusive. And yeah, you know, yeah, that wasn't great. But at least we weren't starving and at least we weren't thirsty. Uh, do you do this? Do you, when, when things go poorly... Do you blame authority immediately when there's hardship in your life, when, when there's things that don't make sense? Are you, do you point fingers and just wish that it would go away? I think that, that, that term, it was better in Egypt, is very telling because I don't know about you, but I actually love the, uh, I enjoy, and it, it's very, uh, it's very beneficial for my flesh, so to speak for when things go poorly to have somebody to blame. And that is the luxury of a slave. That is the, uh, that is the perk of slavery, is that when things go poorly, there's somebody to point at. And there's somebody to say, there's something to go, you know what, at least this isn't my fault. So maybe do this. Uh, another one is there's a constant dissatisfaction in the Israelites. Maybe you do this. We can see this when they, you know, manna falls from heaven, like God provides for his people, even in the, in the desert, you know, bread literally appears on the ground and you see them going and stuffing their pockets with it. Uh, proud people have this scarcity mentality and this dissatisfaction with the provision of God. They only see this far ahead and self-preservation is of their utmost priority. And even when God provides, you know, um, respite, from discipline and he takes care of us in that space we still it's never enough and we stuff our pockets and we go this better appear i, I actually don't think this is going to appear tomorrow and so i gotta i gotta stuff my pockets we see that the israelites do so uh pride is just everywhere 
in my life and I think in yours and in all of ours and in the Israelites for sure. So there's a there's kind of a wordy sentence, uh, two sentences I want to submit to you, but I think they're helpful, is that what we see and what I see in this in the Israelites' behavior and in my own is that pride abdicates responsibility to preserve autonomy. Now, I know those are big words, but we'll, we'll, we'll pick it apart here a little bit. Pride is very quick to abdicate the responsibility of... Uh, uh, of personal ownership of things that are going wrong and to see the the discipline and hardship in our life as a way of God trying to remove our pride, we're quick to abdicate the responsibility of that and instead point fingers and go, you should do this differently and you should do that. Do that. You should do that differently. Blame authority. Wish everything was different. Wish somebody else would do something differently uh, in order to preserve our autonomy and to preserve our selfishness and to preserve our understanding of our world and to preserve control. Pride is always abdicating responsibility to preserve control and autonomy. Uh, and it becomes so quick. We do this so quickly in our life. We do this so quickly where we, we uh, I was trying to come up with ways of describing describing pride, or at least how I see it in my own life. And a, a, a term I thought of is like, when I feel proud, it feels like my flesh gasping for air. Like when somebody corrects me and sees something I'm doing wrong, there's this massive reaction to abdicate responsibility. It says, uh, you didn't do this well, or you didn't love me well in this way, or this was your fault. <laughs> you know, if people say that. I am so quick to defend myself to abdicate responsibility. I'm so quick to not see it as kindness to have my pride die. I'm way quicker to go, well, here's how that it totally wasn't my fault. So, so that I can preserve my autonomy. I can preserve like, no, nope, my life's in control and I'm really not that bad of a person. And there really are good things I can build my life on. And I'm not that bad of a guy. And that's, we do it so quickly. And our pride becomes so ingrained in us and it becomes the thing we turn to so quickly. Uh, it's, it's concerning how much of a knee-jerk reaction that is in my own heart. So what is the antithesis to all this? Uh, this? This proud abdication of responsibility. This going, you know, Moses, why did you lead us here? You know, this, is, was, this wasn't our fault. We didn't ask for this. Why, is all these, why are all these hard things happening? This isn't my fault. It's yours. You know, why do we do that so fast? Well, the opposite of pride is humility. And God's goal in disciplining the Israelites is to humble them. So why? If pride abdicates responsibility to preserve autonomy, then humility takes responsibility to pursue relationship. Humility goes, what can I do to advance love and trust in this moment? Humility says, how can I make this, how can I make this my fault somehow? How can I take responsibility? Where's the pride in my heart? There's got to be something. There's got to be some place that I'm not trusting God. There's got to be some place that my affections are misplaced or my trust is misplaced. Where is that? If somebody corrects you, you go, wow, okay, maybe they're even wrong. Maybe they read your motives wrong. Maybe it's just the worst correction of all time. And you sit and you go, okay, I have an opportunity for my pride and my flesh to die. What can I take responsibility for? What can I take responsibility for? Because I want relationship. So our example for this is 
Jesus, obviously, as, he, as it always is, but it's perfectly spelled out in Philippians 2. When what God credits Jesus with is uh, humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. He doesn't exalt himself. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, take credit for the good. He lets God exalt him. He doesn't blame God for the bad. Jesus goes, not my will, but your will be done. I'm not going to blame you. Uh, he, he, Jesus is this perfect example of humility that takes responsibility for the pursuit of relationship. And uh, he was, Jesus was obedient to his father. That's another sign of pride is we just don't obey. We don't obey. It makes no sense to obey with a proud heart. Because obedience usually is to someone that doesn't deserve it. Or else so we think and we're entitled. But instead, uh, Jesus goes, no, no. I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to obey my father. And it's going to pioneer a relationship. That's what it's going to do. So you and I uh, are... Uh, it, it says in Philippians, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who who did not equality, who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, he humbled himself to the point of death and a cross. He's like, have that mindset in your relationships, in your relationships with one another. Live that way. And so I'm looking at that, going, oh my goodness, have you ever tried to live like Jesus in Philippians two? Like there is so much pride. There's so much separating that from being possible in my life. When I look and I go, okay, I want to have relationships like like Christ had, and I want to live like him. And I want God to exalt me, not myself. To, I don't want my pride to exalt me. I want God to exalt me, just like he exalted Jesus. Okay, got it. Oh my goodness, that that means I have to, that I have to humble myself to the point of death, even death on a cross, like die for my friends. And then I look at myself and I go, I have so much pride in my heart and my knee-jerk reactions to self-protect and to blame others and to elevate myself and to take credit for the good, that, wow, there's so much that needs to die. Okay, here's what I need. I need discipline. I need hardship. I need to be shown that it's not going to work. And so all of a sudden, there's this gratitude maybe even for the desert. There's a exposure of how in the wilderness you really are. <laughs> and about how trusting a loving authority really is going to be the only way out of this wilderness. And it's the point of our life is to be in relationship with God as well. So uh, I spent a lot of time in my life trying to avoid discipline. And I kind of had this funny, I don't know, I don't know if it's unique or not, but this interesting upbringing where I was like an only child for a while. And when you're an only child, it's, it's very convenient because there's nobody to argue with or disagree with. It's, it's pretty smooth. Like your parents have to deal with your core pride and selfishness early on in that kind of toddler stage. But then when you're five, six, seven, I mean, there's no one to compete with. It's, it, it, things were kind of smooth in those years for me as a kid. And then what happened is there's like an explosion of children <laughs> later. And uh, I was kind of older, you know, like I was at least eight years older than all of them, if not 20 years older than all of them. And so I kind of had this weird little off to the side thing where I, I wasn't really parented that much to no fault of my parents. They were busy and uh, my life wasn't that bumpy. And all, I kind of just escaped discipline a lot in my life. Maybe not intentionally, but then I just wasn't used to it. Uh, I wasn't corrected a lot. I was kind of a good kid. I had my nose decently clean. I didn't get into trouble and I, I wasn't disciplined a ton. 
Uh, I'm not trying to blame anybody. I just, uh, if anything, I'm blaming myself. I loved not being disciplined. It's convenient. I, nobody likes it. It's uncomfortable. And even in, uh, even as a teenager uh, in our church, you know, we had a youth ministry and we had leaders that reached out to us and, and stuff, but <laughs> all of my friends would be taken out for coffee by the youth leaders, but like never me. I guess they thought I was okay. And I was perfectly fine with them thinking I was okay because I don't want to be reprimanded. Uh, and you know, looking back on it, I could barely think of moments where I was confronted by somebody in my life. Like somebody went, hey, you're proud or you're arrogant or you're self-righteous or all those would have been very valid critiques of teenage me and, you know, me today, actually. Uh, but nobody ever told me that. And I didn't invite it. And I skirted around opportunities for people to do it, too. So, like, I was very happy to not be corrected. But looking back on it now, I would have given anything for somebody to... I don't know, tear me a new one when I was 21. Like I really needed that. I needed somebody to confront me and discipline me and risk, risk relationship for the sake of what was best for me. That would've been awesome. Cause you know what happened is, uh, is I wasn't disciplined very much in my life and I wound up a very proud person. Like I don't, I am very quick to build my life on my successes. I am very quick to blame others for any sort of uh, discord or pain in my life. I am not easily satisfied. I, uh, I don't enjoy being led. I am quite defensive. I don't like being corrected. I'm, like there's a lot of pride in my life. And so my way out of it isn't working harder. It's just discipline. It's just deserts. The only time pride has ever died in my life is because of a desert or because of something I can't control, or there's a, de a destination I know I can't get to. And it always hurts. <laughs> the death of pride always hurts. And in my, in my life, my stories is I kind of just backlogged a lot of the lessons and I'm learning a ton of them these days. Marriage helps actually. And so you're just learning a ton of lessons about like, wow, I'm proud. Oh my goodness. For the pursuit of intimacy and, and togetherness and wholeness and making disciples and being married. Like, wow, wow. There's a lot of pride that needs to die. So I, I am, I'm learning how to be grateful for deserts and I'm learning how to be grateful for pain because I want relationships. I want, I want a trust-based relationship with my father. So if we're being disciplined away from pride, what are we being disciplined towards? And it's towards sonship. That's the term, we, it's towards a lot, but I'm just gonna use that word today because what I, the verse I'd like to use to unpack this is Hebrews 12, seven to 11. And it's a great uh, unpacking of the point of discipline and why God would do that to us. So we're gonna read it and then just pull a few things out of it to wrap up. So if we're being disciplined towards sonship, Hebrews 12, seven says this, we'll, we'll read the whole thing and then we'll, and we'll go through it bit by bit, but it says endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for good in order that we may share in his holiness. 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, amen, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness, such a cool term, and peace for those who have been trained by it. So let's, uh, let's, let's look at a few things in this because I think it's so profound. First of all, in the first line, it says, endure hardship as discipline. And it almost has this, this connotation that's like, you pick. You pick whether you want to see this hardship as discipline from God or as just an unfortunate circumstance that you can blame somebody else for. So the Israelites had a choice in this moment. Like, okay, we can see this desert as a super unfortunate, terrible thing that just happened to us. Moses, why'd you take us here? We're thirsty. We're hungry. It was better in Egypt. Or they could have endured hardship as discipline from God. Of like, okay, this God's thinking, this is great news for you. You're about to learn how I am going to be, like, you're about to learn how you aren't abandoned and you have a God who loves you and is leading you and you have nothing to worry about. This is what I'm trying to teach you. And you can't see that because you're too proud. This is great news. So endure this hardship as the death of your flesh and the necessary journey for you to understand how to be slaves to me, so to speak. How to be slaves to righteousness. How to be, how to, how to still obey commands, except now you're obeying commands from somebody who loves you and has your best interest and has your whole future planned out. This is good news. So you pick. Hardship can either be a painful circumstance for literally no reason that you can for sure find someone to blame for, or you can see it as an opportunity for more of your flesh to die. So sometimes bad things happen and deserts come and, uh, and it's really hard to see how it was your fault at all. <laughs> Sometimes you're just mistreated. Like the Israelites, for crying out loud. They were, they were just full-on slaves. Like they're just full-on abused. And in the desert, it's just, it's just hard. Like they're wandering around. They are tired. They are hungry. They are thirsty. It is hot. Uh, I don't think they voted to, to leave. Like you can always blame somebody. And so... It is a really difficult thing to look at ourselves and go, there must be some pride here. How can I take this hardship and what could God teach me from it? Now, that's not belittling the abuse that someone may or may not have extended to you. Like, we really are victims sometimes of things. <laughs> and hardships sometimes really are just, they just happen to us. Sometimes we bring them on ourselves. In fact, probably more often than not, we bring them upon ourselves. But there are moments where we're just a victim of somebody else's selfishness or evil. And the Bible's saying, endure hardship as discipline. That is a... You want to talk about the least proud heart is to go, wow, I've been hurt. And this... I'm, I'm, I'm a victim. And to go... God, what are you teaching me right now? How can I find you in this? So I'll tell you what happens to me is sometimes I'm a victim, rarely, but sometimes I'm a victim. And I'm like, I, I'm enjoying being a victim right now. Like if I could, sometimes God gives me the grace to be that humble, sometimes to go, I'm enjoying my victimhood because I have somebody to point at right now. This feels awesome. It's sad and it's hard. It's terrible times. But like, there's something so great about it being somebody else's fault. And instead God will go, aha, you see that? You see that? Um, 
that is preventing you from being humble and for taking responsibility for the pursuit of relationship. You're not loving your enemies. And he whispers to me in that moment, uh, react off of me. You're super hurt right now and you could blame somebody if you wanted to, but don't be entitled to your pain. Don't grab it. That's not a good God. It's not a good God. I'm a good God. Follow me. Use these opportunities. Endure hardship as discipline so, you, so another part of your flesh can die, so you can be set free from more of your selfishness, so that you can be closer with other people. It is good news. I know that's a hard sell sometimes because pain is real, and sometimes their fingers do, do need to be pointed, and there's justice that needs to happen for others that have hurt us. And, and God, what are you doing in me? How are you drawing closer to me in this moment? What are you teaching me about yourself? Where's a piece of me that you can that I can crucify? How can I how can I humble myself to the point of death, even death on a cross for those that I love? Oh my goodness, if that's not freedom, I don't know what is. So, here's what we are entitled to. I don't know if we're entitled to pain and finger pointing, but we are entitled to be children of God. Read this. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters. So we can see discipline and go, I am being disciplined. God is highlighting a piece of my pride because he wants to show me how much of a son or daughter I am. This is great news. That's an interesting way of viewing calamity. That's an interesting way of viewing deserts. Is The children of God are in the desert with him, by the way. You are my people. I know that's hard to hear in a desert. That's hard to hear in a desert. You're my people. But it's the truth. It's the truth. God's saying, you're my people. That's why you're here. Like, look where we're going. Look where you were. Some more good news. If we skip down to verse 10, uh, halfway through, it says, God disciplines us for good in order that we may share in his holiness. Like, we're, when, we, when we let hardship and deserts refine our character and when, when, when we let them speak to our pride and when we let them speak to our selfishness, what happens is our, f- our flesh dies and we're made holy and more like him and more righteous. And, uh, and all that doesn't belong in our hearts gets stripped away. Like this is when a piece of your flesh dies, it hurts like heck, but it also, every time that happens, maybe you guys have had experiences where your flesh has died, like a, 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 uh, something that didn't deserve your trust, something that you were leaning on like an idol or, or some piece of pride or something. When it dies, you're like, I know that didn't work and I'm so glad it's dead. And it hurt to get rid of it because I love parts of that. But we know that feeling and it feels like freedom and, 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 and it feels like holiness and being set apart to be children of God. Like that's what he's disciplining us into. This is great news. And finally, in verse 11, it says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, right? Later on, however... It produces a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Uh, When our pride dies and when humility overwhelms our hearts and when our Christ-like character gets to win the day by the power of the Spirit, it produces a harvest of right relationship for those for, for between us and God and for those around us, a harvest of right relationship. We know these people who aren't proud. We know humble people in our lives. We know when we've been humble or when someone else is like, been humble towards us. Your heart goes out to them. You want to be close. It's a when some when people are taking responsibility for anything they possibly could take responsibility for because they're so desperate to be close again. This is 
that's the amazing Christian life. It's what church community is built on. It's, it's, it's showing the world that our love for one another supersedes all the legitimate finger pointing that could have happened. So uh, I want to harvest a right relationship in my life, in your life, and in our church. And all of a sudden, pride becomes the enemy. Humility becomes the goal. And deserts become necessary. And they're helpful. So maybe you find yourself in a desert moment. There's lots of desert moments around these days. There's lots of stories of pain and, and discord and, and, and life being thrown in a bit of a blender. These are strange days. And we could categorize this time maybe as a desert, lots of us. We have some choices. We could choose to see them as unfortunate circumstances that would be very easy to blame others for. Man, it's easy to blame others, isn't it? And man, does it feel good. Man, it's easy for my pride to abdicate responsibility for the sake of preserving my own autonomy and self-actualization and control. It, it's, it's a semblance of, it's, a, it's like a, it feels like a, a, an oasis, but it's actually just a mirage. Or instead, we can find the true oasis, which is, okay, this is hard. Would you find me here? And would you endure hardship as discipline from your father who loves you and has a plan for you? And those, that's easier to do sometimes than others. And that's why we get to do this together. And that's why we get to refine each other. And we get to highlight what Christ is doing in each other's lives. And we get to say, oh, look, God, God is here. And we get to help each other, you know, bring our pride to the foot of the cross and go, not my will, but your will be done. Which is Jesus' ultimate statement in his wrestle with, even Jesus was wrestling with preserving himself for a moment of like, oh, if you would take this cup from me, Lord, you know, that'd be fine, but not my will, but your will be done. That's humility. So uh, you were designed to not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father. That's in this verse that we read earlier in Deuteronomy. It's like we weren't designed to be proud and feed ourselves. We were designed to live on the sustenance that can only come from intimacy and trust with the Father. And even Jesus says, I have food you don't know about. And my, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And his will for us is that we would take up our cross and follow him into a life of, that is devoid of pride and self, selfishness and one of wholeness and intimacy and closeness and humility. And I think that's freedom. So I don't know about you today, but maybe you find yourself in painful situations. And uh, I would really encourage you to go, Father, would you check my heart? Would you, would you uh, uh, do what you did to the Israelites and discipline me and see what's in my heart? See whether I'll obey you. See whether I'll obey you because I love you and trust you. That's a great, that's a great disposition in a desert. It doesn't mean you have to get over it quickly. The Israelites run it for 40 years. It's a long time, but you know what? I don't know how long deserts will last for, but I trust him that he's in it with me and he's leading us. And finally, church, end with this. The manna falls from the sky and he's with us in it and there's a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night and he doesn't abandon us there. And that's a promise we can hold on to. The joy comes in the morning 
And that he doesn't stand on the other side of the chasm disciplining us from on high. He's there with us at the bottom of it. And Christ is our example who literally went through this valley and goes through it with you every day if you'll let him. He is happy to be right there with you in the bottom of the pit. Could you find him there? Could you find him there? And you'll find that intimacy is one second away from relinquishing pride and choosing to find him in that moment. He's right there every time. Relationship is right there every time on the other side of pride when we choose to kill it. So Father, um, I ask you to speak to us this morning and highlight our pride to us. We're so desperate and we're so lost and this wilderness is so daunting. But I pray that you would discipline us out of our pride. Would you help us not to take credit, help us give you credit for all the good. Help us not blame others for all the bad. But would you show us that what's separating us is not external, it's internal. <laughs> Our sin is what separates us from you. So refine me and would you, would, you, would you chip away at all the pride in my heart. And I thank you that you've given us so much opportunity to do that. As we rub relationships all together in this messy thing called church, I pray that we'd see all of that pain sometimes as an opportunity to draw close and an opportunity for our flesh to die. We're so grateful that you that you're so, you're so tenacious for our hearts and you're so secure in who you are that you would push us into these seasons. And so we say that we trust you. We trust you in these times. Uh, you're king and you're good and you, you deserve all the control and authority, not me, not us. So we reassert you as our king this morning who knows better. Humble us. Humble us this morning, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's worship in response.